Um, I'm going to begin with the title poem of the first book John mentioned, Small Hours, which is a, a poem, I suppose, about what poetry might be. It's worth saying that in the book it follows immediately on a translation from Sappho, with which it has some relationship in what it says. <coughs> um, It was written in the kitchen of our house in Winchester uh, some years ago. Small hours. Somebody has been reading Book of the Week, but the radio's off. I've heard the gale warning for the sea south of us. Rain runs caressingly down the outside walls of every room. Yesterday, two printed death announcements arrested me, the first for a man rich in honours who had made a hundred and one, the second, right above it, for a child who fell asleep on her first day. The rain quickens and falters, quickens. Grief gusts around us in stories we shall never know. To report on the dreadful with an unflinching voice, is that poetry? To say life is terrible, man a morass of contradictions? Or to move like a person of leisure, of dreamt-of leisure, from long-curtained rooms to the bright, thriving garden, ordered as we would have it? Muse, all you want is a few words that will say how it was for us at 1am on a Wednesday morning, so clearly that a thousand years may hear. I'm next going to read a poet about, uh, sorry, a poem about a poet, um, the American poet William Carlos Williams. Uh, Williams, the only thing you need to know about Williams for this, apart from the fact he was a very great and at the moment in this country slightly undervalued poet, uh, is that he was also a practising doctor. Um, WCW. Saxifrage, said William Carlos Williams, was his flower because it split stone. Yesterday, in a pot, a clump of it, weedy red petals, stems robust as peasant legs. It would survive a, wee a summer's rage for decking, frost memory, meltwater gush, black August. It wouldn't last a weekend in the jungle, being a flower of the far north, temperate at best. Williams was a doctor, and he could listen to his language for the slightest sign, like a stethoscope. Saxum is stone, frag the root of frangery to break. Latin names for northern things, ghosts of empire. Williams had time for the patient ones, men, women, children who hang on, who pull through. Saxifrage, splitting stone. Um, the, I'm going to read a poem now out of a sequence. Um, I suppose what I'm thinking about is what one might call uh, cultural change or cultural decay. It's from a sequence called Humanities, and this is the, the fifth part, a poem called History. It's about a book I found in a well, I got from Amazon, actually. Uh, 
who of course nobody should ever name, but we all use it. Um, the interesting thing is that shopping habits should be the one thing we feel privacy matters about at this time. <laughs> History. Jacket gone, but a sturdy dark maroon hardback, 1951. The Lost Library by Walter Mehring. He talks about his father's books, how he had them fetched from Paris to Vienna and lived with them for a year in the Nazi time. It is an elegy for a curriculum. It is an elegy for humanism. It is an elegy for Europe. There is one impersonal, neat, sharp pencil emendation supplying an omission from some lines of Horace. Let the schoolmaster and the pedant rejoice with me. Like a hermit crab moving house, something of the European mind he believed dead had survived to read him after the darkness and the flame, a back stiffened to carry Horace from the rubble. The end, of course, I'm thinking a bit of uh, Anchises being carried by Aeneas out of the, the wreckage of, of Troy. Um, this is about, I suppose, a different kind of solitude. Many of you will remember the person in this poem, if you ever... That was badly put. Let me put it differently. From your memories of London, memory of you will remember this chap. Uh, and... What interests me is how more and more writers are beginning to refer to him. It's called Come Wind. He turns up in poems, more and more poems, that chap with sandwich boards denouncing protein and all its works, as though he were a figure for the poet. I first saw him when I was 14, 15, but already I'd read about him somewhere as a London fixture and feature. Now he's read about more than anyone ever read his message in his childlike, frowning, obsessive script. He was particularly hot on beans, which he wanted us all to give up eating, as their consumption is a cause of social breakdown through widespread immorality, notably of a sexual kind. He must have started, I suppose, about the time the scandals of an old establishment featured cool girls and Soviet attaches. I remember a sorry little man in a shopkeeper's brown coat, but I'm not sure. I don't one moment think he wasn't mad, but his firmness of purpose, his unyielding presence, come wind, come winter, come the decades, stick like the wild autistic sandwich boards he must now carry for eternity down Oxford Street or Tottenham Court Road. Um... One of the things which has most surprised me in recent years is the increasing public or expressed public hostility to religion, uh, something genuinely new in our culture and genuinely puzzling. And this is a poem about that. It's, called, it's something I observed. It's called Creme, which everybody knows is short for crematorium, don't they? Uh, at the dismal humanist funeral they'd asked a cousin to preside, a priest. There was time for reflection, but not for prayer. At the very end, curtains about to close around the coffin, she leant over it, 
made the sign of the cross and blessed it furtively like a dissident. Um, I do think poetry ought to be about everything, really. Uh, when Stefan Mallarmé said that the whole world exists to end up in a book, <laughs> I, most poets feel he was right. <laughs> um, and this is a poem which was addressed implicitly to a one of my closest friends who, who died shortly after this was published. It's called Tina, which is a slang word for crystal meth, which, as I hope you don't know, is a dangerously addictive drug. <laughs> Tina. She makes wraiths, phantoms, of the most remarkable people. She shows you all your friends are false friends, and you spend whole weekends awake and wasted at the kind of party where you put a rubber sheet down before the fun starts, naked or dressed in leather, rubber, PVC or cling film. Boys arrive like 3D printing from the internet. They are new friends for you. Do I envy your abandonment to pleasure? Possibly but not the ashen afterwards, not knowing how you got home, not the swinging door and the money missing, not waking scratching as though trying to tear your face off. She speeds your speech until it is unintelligible. Quite soon, there will only be her to talk to. And I suppose I may as well read another death poem. Um, this is about... Well, it is one of the great subjects, you know, because it's universal and uh, statistically inevitable. Um, this is about somebody I was at school with. It's called Nocturne. I've thought of you from time to time, four decades since you went back to your vast continent and disappeared from small talk. Curious, I search the net for you. Some unrevealing death notices and one police report. I didn't even know that you had died. I find your last address on Google Street View. It is one of two buildings, one set back. Neither's a flop house, but they don't look much. They've not been cared for as their neighbours have. Your apartment's number suggests the ground floor. At our age, when we have to start to answer to ourselves for what we have made of life, there should be more to show at where you lived, bohemian and bookish, than this peeling white paint, these cheap cars on the forecourt, surely. I wonder whether it's some kind of shelter. They say you were a freelance writer. Nothing confirms this on the net. So did you die committed to a writing no one wanted? hold hopes too long that failing broke the spirit. It might just be you took your own life. Forgive me that I cannot let you go altogether forgotten to your grave if that was what you wanted in the last hours. The ignobility of your arrest, little more than a week before you died, makes you someone I just don't recognise, puts you somewhere I flinch from thinking of, 
drunk by mid-morning, or your mind destroyed, gone, flashing and swearing at a woman from next door, someone you may have known, who called the cops. That's on record. Their brief report, all facts, no story, makes me want only to think of you when we were young. The morning, say, when somebody had heard you weren't sure if the Grateful Dead were playing pre- or post-revolutionary music, but you were working on it. I forget the answer, but expectancy comes back, and I recall our walk through fields one dawn when the first bird chirped from the trees around, then all to ring us with ecstatic sound. It is still dark in the world. Already, I am not a young man. Um, this is slightly longer. It's taken from a, a Daily Telegraph obituary um, for a chap I'd never heard of. Chap, that, I, I keep using that word these last few days, and I don't know why. It dates me awfully, doesn't it? I, I'm not even that old. Um, uh, anyway, this, this guy... That's better, isn't it, down with the youth? Um, this, this, this person was a musician, and I'd never heard of him, but I was just intrigued by the, the life he had led. Um, I, I'm going to assume that everyone knows who Lee Harvey Oswald was, and how, his, how he met his end. Yep. On reading an obituary of Sir Latimore Brown, soul musician. He comes home from Vietnam to find wife A with child by another man, so takes his music on the road. After a time, he has a club. He calls it the Atmosphere Lounge. He takes the house band on the chitling circuit. He signs with Otis Redding's agency. Redding dies in a plane crash. Otis is gone is his one big hit. Wife B, club two. B dies after heart surgery. No club. Wife C dies of lung cancer, so he totes his music back on the road. Somebody takes to using as a stage name one too like his, and the mafia pissed at the mix-ups, put out a contract on him. Fall guy, so no more road. A third club. Bill Clinton blows some sacks there. The club fails. Time has passed. He trudges back to the road again, though a business Bible says he's been dead for 20 years. And then a hurricane, Katrina, leaves him badly injured and homeless, all his worldly goods destroyed. Wife D, we haven't met her yet, dies of a heart attack. He's living in a trailer park. He doesn't hear for five months. He's stabbed and robbed and left for dead. A good nurse introduces him to a man who gets him singing again. He buys a new house and is run over nearby. Killed. That's the story of Sir Latimer Brown, who never knew his parents. Sir was his own addition, not, we might note, king, count, duke, or earl. Towards the end, he said, God has blessed me. The greatest thing in life is to let your heart be kind and respect others as you would have them to do unto you. 
Hard not to laugh at such unmitigated bad luck. Harder still not to flinch at such nobility. And the atmosphere lounge failed when the sleeping partner went out and killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, thank you. That is extremely kind of you. Um, we were going to say, could you please refrain from applauding during it because it, it kind of gets competitive and unless you think of me as Stalin and want to stand and clap until you die, uh, <laughs> nobody knows when to stall. <laughs> um, uh, but thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Um, uh, I'll read a tiny little poem now because that was quite long. Um, this is called Stars. It's a sort of a riddle poem but it's not very difficult. Stars. We thought to bring the stars down to earth like we are. We built them concrete and metal columns to perch on. They only gave a stranger lonelier light. Uh, two or three years ago, I was commissioned to write a biography of Susanna Hall, Shakespeare's daughter, for a book called Shakespeare and His Circle, uh, edited by Stanley Wells and Paul Edmondson and available from any good bookshop. Um, it was a book which set out to do Shakespeare by looking at the people round him. It was a very interesting conception. Um, but of Susanna, we do actually still know very little, I'm afraid. Uh, but while I was doing it, I got fascinated by his brothers, um, whom I wasn't asked to write about, so I wrote each of them a poem instead. Uh, and this is my poem for Edmund Shakespeare, who was born in 1580 and died at the age of 20. Seven in, in uh, 1607. Um, I'm sorry, mental arithmetic and page numbers at the same time is uh, multitasking. Um, now, one of the delights of reading the Revengers tragedy, whoever wrote it, is the great line, Old Dad Dead, um, because you can't really believe that Dad was an Jacobean word, but there it is. And I love the way those Ds hit each other so you can hardly say it. Oh, Dad, dead. <laughs> he is, of course, like almost everyone else in the play. But uh, uh, anyway, this is Edmund looking back. Our old dad dead. My brother took on headship of the family. He was now 37. I was 21. He'd been married since I was two. He'd been playing the part for years. I grew up with the children. Oldest, I led our games. Susanna, daddy's girl, pert, sexy, scary, brilliant. Hamnet, bright hope, too young to know what he might promise, died. Judith, who made us laugh and went to the bad, married and ran a tough house. Raucous, unseemly lass, but little then. We all were. Distracted, gripped, he'd hold the table silent with the gaze of his wandering inward eye. I wondered if it helped pull women. He would scream in his sleep if he saw horrible things. He'd smile and say, I word them, that's the trick of it. He'd be away for months, then lantern, horse, half-muffled face. 
He loved his children's flash of recognition. He scattered oranges and toys. He marveled at how they'd grown or changed. At how I had. I followed him to London before our father died. Acted. Better, I like to think, than he did. In a different theatre. Grew a small name. Had many friends. Chased women. Drank where he did not. Mistress and small boy. Edward. Someone misspelt him Edward Sharksby. Names dissolve and dissipate. I'd not go back to Stratford. London was a release. You could be anyone. I never knew how he bore his unutterably dull friends on their treadmill of births, marriages, deaths and work. And I wouldn't haunt Stratford now, where at theatre time empty restaurants lurk like pike. How trapped in words he was, words black as the veins in marble. His Edgar, that absolute dreary nothing, talks himself into being person, a person fit for kingship by speaking whirling madness. I died at 27. I imagine my family, his family, my sisters who were not my sisters, nieces who called me uncle as a joke, Susanna, look up from your book. Judith, freeze mid-paw. To Edgar's bastard brother, the most engaging, hollowest, most frivolously wicked of all his villains, my brother gave his brother's name. Um, there's time for two more, I think. Um, I'm going to read one that I wrote after the book, it's just appeared in The Spectator. Uh, it, again, is a newspaper. Newspapers are wonderful sources for poems, particularly local newspapers. Uh, and any good local newspaper, which the Hampshire Chronicle is and remains in this age so hostile to them, um, has a 200 years ago column where they reprint a little extract from a story 200 years ago, which is usually much more interesting than the current ones. Um, and this was in the Hampshire Chronicle over 20 years ago, but it stuck with me. From the Hampshire Chronicle. And you will remember, of course, just in case you aren't historians, that Judge Jeffreys precedes the 18th century by about 120 years. The bloody assizes follow Monmouth's Rebellion in the 1680s. From the Hampshire Chronicle. An 18th century murder trial heard perhaps in the same great hall as, I think it was there, Judge Jeffreys had whispered silkily, give me names, I love names. I hope he got none. The woman's name escapes me, not the thought of her heart hardened against herself or of the muttering creaturely compassion of the people watching, men, women, this example. Beyond all doubt, she had killed her baby. Beyond all doubt, her guilty singleness had before that driven her stark mad. In front of an aghast crowd, she pleaded guilty. Even the judge was in tears, begging she change her plea. She refused, so she had to be let go hang. Um, two more? Uh, right. I'll read um, uh, 
friendship is an emotion that doesn't always get into poetry very easily, I think. It's, it's, it, being in love is very easy, really, but friendship is, is elusive, and lost friendships are even harder, I think. Um, interestingly, Auden said that he'd only lost one friendship in his life, and that was his friendship with Benjamin Britten, and that he regretted it bitterly, but he never wrote about it. Uh, Anyway, this is about one of those. It's called Afternoons. Between us now, there is nothing. A damp beach under massed cloud. No rain. Darkness where the cloud meets the sea. I miss our afternoons of tea and talk. Your Iris Murdochs, long skirts and glasses. Some fool told you I was in love with you. I wasn't. I was too gauche to say so. It's a tricky thing to say, isn't it? No, I'm, I'm not in love with you. Um, I was too gauche to say so in our terse interview. Friendship roadkill. Between us now, there is nothing. A damp beach under still cloud. Unbroken procession of unbreaking waves. They shift some bits of tethered weed back and forth like a masked dementia. And I'm going to finish with um, another, but perhaps more cheerful elegy in a way, uh, the title poem of the book, which is, is Doves. Um, this is a poem in uh, parts. There are five parts to it, and I never know quite how you indicate that, whether you put your hand up or you click your fingers or you say part, whatever. I'm just going to pause for slightly longer between them. Uh, doves in memoriam, Seamus Heaney. Two collared doves came and sat on my open window all spring. She had a damaged feather and the more trusting nature. She would lay her head on his breast and watch me. Daily they came and went, fetching a litter of twigs they dropped on the windowsill. They were like raw newlyweds, knowing they should make a home, not yet knowing how. One morning, there was an egg on top of the window. It lasted two days. After a few weeks, neither of them flew away when I pulled the curtains open. I talked to them. I thought about St. Francis. I thought about love as they revealed it. Then he grew cocksure and squeezed into the room as I'd thought he couldn't. Crossed a line I hadn't considered. The mess and broken plants were too much. I pulled the window closer. It left too little room for them. They never came again, and I felt I had violated all their trust. They weren't symbolic or a message, but simply what they were. A visitation, not of ghosts, not of memories, but of something unstained and pure. Thol, that was the word you focused on, thinking of things we say when someone dies. Along with he'll be missed, you remembered you'll have to thole. Endure, suffer. Be patient in the sense of undergoing, without complaint, great pain. As the Spartan boy hugged the fox that feasted on his guts.
Self-discipline will keep us civil. I remember you lit up at an Irish embassy party. You had been kind to Wendy and to me. That was the night you held us both in one big hug. Then you read and the room was clapping. You weren't hurt into poetry, but lured to it, trout to the fly, by the relish of sounds that rang truest when informed by the home, or, increasingly, by Latin. Poeta doctus, surely. It was the country boy's gape and gawp at the world, though, through which so much came in to be transfigured. And bewilderment at the wilderness men make of what is human or humane and understanding why. Two collared doves came and sat on my open window all spring, birds yet a visitation of something pure, unstained. Visitations and intimations, bread for the spirit to be found everywhere daily, would we only allow ourselves to marvel Poetry's task is the marvellous in the ordinary and losses to be told. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so honoured to be here. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Um, thank you, Lachlan, for agreeing to read with me. I'm very honoured. And thank you to the brilliant organizers of this festival. It's, it's, it's quite a wonderful thing. The spirit of it is, is very moving. I'm going to begin um, with the title poem of this book, Prodigal. Um, I don't think I need to explain. Um, Prodigal, copper and ginger. The plentiful mass of it bound, half loosed, and bound again in lavish disregard as though such heaping up were a thing indifferent. Surfeit from the table of the gods who do not give a thought to fairness. No, who throw their bounty in a single lap. The chipped enamel blue on her nails. The lashes sticky with sunlight. You would swear she hadn't a thought in her head except for her buttermilk waffle and its just proportion of jam. But while she laughs and chews, half singing with the lyrics on the radio, half shrugging out of her bathrobe in the kitchen warmth, she doesn't quite complete this last part. One of the sleeves, as though you'd swear she couldn't be bothered, still covers her arm, which means you do not see the cuts. Girls of an age, 15, for example, still bearing the traces of when they were new, of when the breasts had not been thought of, when the troublesome cleft was smooth, are anchored on a fault line. It's a wonder they survive at all. This ginger-haired darling isn't one of my own, if own is ever the way to put it, but I've known her since her heart could still be seen at work beneath the fontanelles. Her skin was almost otherworldly, touch so silken 
It seemed another kind of sight, a subtler boundary than obtains for all the rest of us, though ordinary mortals bear some remnant to consider the loved one's fine-grained inner arm. And so it's there, from wrist to elbow, that she cuts. She takes her scissors to that perfect page. She's good. She isn't stupid. She can see that we, who are children of plenty, have no excuse for suffering. We should be ashamed. And so she is. And so she has produced this many-layered hieroglyphic, channels raw, half-healed, Reopened before the healing gains momentum, she has taken for her copy text the very cogs and wheels of time. And as for her other body, says the plain song on the morning news, the hole in the ozone, the fish in the sea, you were thinking what exactly? You were thinking a comfortable breakfast would help. I think I thought we'd deal with that tomorrow then you'll have to think again. Thank you. But, um, and one, I, try to, I don't write a lot of cheerful poems. Um, I've uh, had, I have some dear friends who, you know, especially one very trusted um, poet, editor, friend, who says, you know, could we have something like a little happier to leaven this manuscript. So here's one of my uh, happier poems. Um, It's in the persona of um, the heliotrope. I I, I used to bring um, students uh, to a summer school program in, 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 in London and take them to the theater and have them read post-war English novels and all of that. And, and we um, had a tour once of the National Theater. And during that tour, I learned, A, during the tour, I ran into a dear friend of mine backstage at the then Cottesloe because Rita Dove was, was having a play put on uh, that season. But in the, um, in the larger theater, in the Olivier, the tour guide explained to us that this color of the, the, the upholstery on the seats, that wonderful, you'll know it, that purple-gray love, was, is that color because it was Olivier's favorite color. And furthermore, that the word for that color, heliotrope, was one he used for his vocal warm-ups every night. So heliotrope, heliotrope, like that. So this is heliotrope, Olivier Theater, South Bank. Oh, and the flower, those, most of you, garden um, or know more of it than I do. The heliotrope, um, and you can just summon up images on, 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 on your computer, is uh, it's, it's a many-blossomed um, flower. Heliotrope. I was his favorite, simply that. And you can see for yourself why it might have been the true, the lushest, least likely to weary the eyes of all the serried wavelengths, never obvious, my bit of the spectrum unstable somehow in a way that kept bringing him back. Search image on your browser and you'll see what I mean. I've never had the advantage of sculptural beauty as the lily has. I haven't been able to boast that stricture of line, that making no mistakes. God knows I've wished for it, beggars can dream. But no, Some neither this nor that turns out to be my sphere. Some manyness rather than singular perfection. 
which I like to think he thought about. He made this place. They named it for him and upholstered the seats in heliotrope, whose cluster of vowels and consonants he loved like my blue-going violet with touches of gray. The vocal colors warm up nightly before the play. So you see, they were wrong, the ones who called me unrequited. I was in his throat, among the folds and ridges and beyond them to the very dome upon whose curve the heart resides. Just think what it used to be then in the hour before they'd let the rest of you in. My many faces toward the sun who spoke, no, sang my name. Um, heliotrope, the, 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 the legend in Ovid is that the, 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 the flower... Uh, face follows the sun. Um, it's, it's another kind of sunflower because this was a nymph who was in love with Apollo and um, uh, wasted away, um, unrequited. Um, for the taking is the last poem I'll read from this book. I'm then going to read some new poems. And always, the damp blonde curls on her temples and bountifully down to her shoulder blades, the rich, loose curls all summer mixed with sand and sweat, and the rare, voluptuous double curve of her nether lip. Most children lose that ripeness before they can talk. And the solemn forehead, which betokens thought, and alas for her, obedience and the pure, unmuddied line of the jaw and the peeling brown shoulders. She was always a child of the sun. This was his sweet piece of luck, his find, his renewable turn-on. And my brown and golden sister at eight and a half took to hating her body and cried in her bath, and this was years. My bad uncle did it for years, in the back of the car, in the basement where he kept his guns. And we who could have saved her, who knew what it was in the best of times to cross the bridge of shame from the body unencumbered to the body on the block, we would be somewhere mowing the lawn or basting the spare ribs right outside. And how many times have you heard this? We were deaf and blind and have ever since required of her that she take care of us, and she has, and here's the worst. She does it for love. Um, three years ago was the 100th anniversary of the uh, National Park System in the United States, and the Library of Congress and the Academy of American Poets and maybe the Poetry Society of America commissioned um, 50 poems one from each state celebrating a national park. And I was asked to do the one from Michigan, and there is in Michigan, um, on the, uh, on, on, in the north, um, on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the Lake Michigan, the opposite side of it is Wisconsin, um, is, uh, is uh, a, some, a, a state park called Sleeping Bear Dunes. Um, and it, uh, the, the name... 
of the dunes there. They're magnificent. It's like Northern California, except the water's not salt. It's really quite extraordinary. Just off that um, shore is really a, a, a ship graveyard. Um, there was and still is a very, very active uh, trading um, that, go, that goes on in on, on the um, Lake Michigan, on the Great Lakes generally. As it turns out, my um, great-grandfather was a Norwegian ship captain and, and worked on the, sailed on, on Lake Michigan. So Sleeping Bear, it's in a uh, some, it's in succession sections. Don't be frightened. At the, I'll try to make them go quickly. Um, <laughs> and it's called Sleeping Bear. Sleeping Bear National Lakeshore, Leelanau County, Michigan. One. The backstory is always of hardship, isn't it? No other voices and hoping for better on foreign shores. A minute ago, as measured by the sand dunes here, the shipping lanes were thick with them. From Hamburg, Limerick, towns along the Oslo Fjord, and lucky to have found the work. The Michigan woodlands hadn't been denuded yet a minute ago. So one of the roots was lumber, and the other tapped a prairie's worth of corn. There's a sort of cushioned ignorance that comes of being born and then allowed to live in safety. So I used to think it must have been more forgiving here, less brutal than the brutal North Atlantic with its fathoms and its ice. But no. The winds, the reefs, there's something to do with narrower troughs between the waves, and lakes like this are deadlier than oceans. In a single year, the weather claimed one in every four. We come for the scale of it. Waters without a limit the eye can apprehend, and could there be some mistake, aren't salt. Dunes that dwarf pretension, which, if falsely consoling, is right and good. Where commerce lifts its sleeping head. If I had the lungs for diving, I expect I'd be there too, among the broken ribs and keels. Visitors need a place to sleep and something to fill up the evenings. It's natural. The people in town need jobs. Calamity turned profit in tranquility. My father's father's father was among the ones who did not drown, who sold his ship and bought a farm, too. What is it about the likes of us who cannot take it in until the body of a single Syrian three-year-old lies face down on the water's edge? Or this week's child, who pulled from the rubble, wipes with the back and then the heel of his small left hand. This time we have a video too. The blood congealing near his eye then wipes. This is a problem. You can see him thinking where the hand on the chair where the medic has put him. So many children, so little space in our rubble-strewn hearts, in alternative news feeds, I am cautioned, there is history, there is such a thing as bias, that to see is not to understand, which, yes, I know. The poster child, the ad space, my consent to be governed by traffic in arms is true, and quite beside the point. The boy on the beach, foreshortened in the photograph, 
look smaller than his nearly three years would make him, which contributes to the poignancy. The waves have combed his dark hair smooth. The water on the shingle, indifferent to aftermath, shines. Three. There was once, says the legend, a wind-borne fire, or as some will recount it, a famine, and a mother bear with her two cubs was driven into the lake. They swam for many hours until the smaller of the cubs began to weaken and despite all the mother could do, was drowned. Then the second cub also. So when the mother reached the shore, which then, as now, betokened a land of plenty, she lay down with her face to the shimmering span whose other side was quite beyond her powers of return. The islands we call Manitou, the one and then the other, are her cubs. She can see them. We go to them now by ferry. We are not the people to whom the legend belongs. Four. And even on my city block, there has always been suffering, both little and large, but does it compare to mine? Yours is nothing. I saw the woman running. I heard her scream. You did nothing. She said, please. She said, help me. We all stood still. You all stood still. It took us a minute to figure it out. By then they were down the street. And then the men were on bikes. I didn't think that happened here. That wasn't my question. Whatever they'd taken had made her quite desperate. I've never heard a scream like that. Then you. Then we went on with our evening. Five. Stroke of the pen. 1642 on a Friday. Say you were already in the air. You've given away your blankets, your tent. You thought you'd seen the last of camps. Or say it was your buddy from the 82nd Airborne. Interpreter, ally, engineer. Targeted twice because of what he did for you. His papers are no good now. Your promises were lies. Detrimental, says the president. Malicious intent says, only those who love us. That's your favorite part. Six. If a spirit, call him Manitou, takes pity on a family of bears, or more to the point, if humans imagine they share the earth with bears who are worthy of pity, and a cognizant spirit, however remorse, has pity to spare, why then, why then, a sand dune may be more than sifted silica. The wind goes on with its sorting. The lake bed cradles its dead. But part of the language the glacier used to speak to the sculpted substrate will include this bit of sediment. We didn't mean to fail you. We were here.
three more poems. I think we'll be on time. Love poem. Once, my very best darling, the sea and the land were all one mass. And the light was confused and hadn't found a place to rest. And Emma, love, my sister's eyes were not yet there to hold it all together since she hadn't yet been born. And I imagine, though I never thought to ask them, I believe they must have been afraid. My own poor bid at being born so nearly having killed her. Not my sister, no, our mother. Though I see, looking into your own two eyes, that one as a matter of course entails the other. And I don't even think I can properly call it love, what I demanded, what I had in mind. I wanted something mine. And what you wish for, if the gods see fit to grant it, marks the limits of your soul. And though the years have scoured the worst of what made me unfit for the gift, had even then when you were new improved the odds, if all I could think with you in my arms was taste of bile, the thousand ways of harming you lest the world should do it for me, what's to become of me now she's gone? My sister, love, my one and longed for only. You said... Because it has fallen on you to be my comfort, that's your daily job. You said, there's been science, the people in labs have done brain scans, and the thing we take for this I am about to do is really just the flash of the neurons and fear which has evolved to keep us safe. I didn't keep her safe. I left her to the daily harms. I might have seen them coming, some of them, one of the worst in any case, and then... But that was different than the illness that had only left me bitten took her altogether in its jaws. I thought sometimes that she had turned away from me. I am frightened for you till you do. One of the great gifts and surprises of um, family life was a, a period of years when I spent um, servicing two young horseback riders <laughs> when they were too young to drive, taking them to the stable and back and uh, um, having to um, learn enough to be modestly useful as a volunteer in our nearby pony club. So I started out, I don't know, mowing lawns, and, 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 and painting jump fences. Um, then they stuck me out in the shrubbery to be a jump judge with a, with a, with, with a clipboard. And I said, no, you don't understand. I have no idea what I'm looking at. They said, it's okay, it's okay. If, if she comes within so many yards of the fence and stops um, dead, that's a refusal. If it happens three times, you have to tell her to quit the course. What they didn't tell me is that I would be in the position of, of having to tell a sobbing 11-year-old to quit the course. <laughs> so, um, our, we finally um, owned, welcomed into our family a marvelous horse, um, uh, half uh, thoroughbred, half Connemara named Donovan. And he was 28 when finally he was just, it, it wasn't fair to keep him alive anymore. So this was a couple of summers ago. We had to put him down. And um, this is a kind of love poem too. It's called Narrow Flame. Sun at the zenith, greening earth, 
slight buckling of the left hind leg. And all the while, the girl at his ear, good boy, and now the hip giving way, and mildly, as was ever his wont, the lovely heft of him lists toward the field that minutes ago was still so sweet for grazing and good boy, and on the ground now, where the frightening last shudder of lungs that we've been warned about does thank you, darling, does not come, and feeling for a pulse, no pulse, and warning us, touching the liquid eye which does not close, which means the slender needle with its toxic everlastingness has done its job. Good boy. Unbuckling the halter, lifting the beautiful head to her lap, and all this while the girl. And a final poem. Um, this too is written in sections, but it's shorter, fewer sections. Um, three sections. Love poem. One. Once, my very best darling, the sea and the land were all one mass, and the light was confused and hadn't found a place to rest, and Megan, love, my sister's eyes were not yet there to hold it all together since she hadn't yet been born. So when the world dropped out from under us and no one, not the on-calls with their CAT scans, not the sovereign souls who monitor the twilight room where newborns come to die or live, when no one could tell us if you would be one of the lucky ones able to walk and speak. And only this, the one unstinted blessing fate had given us to give you was a sister in whose eyes you were the sun and moon. It meant we all, no matter what befell us, all had solid ground. Pity the part we think we do on purpose. Two. When Karen was dying and books had shut their doors to her, she could still make out the puzzle of knit and pearl. I'm keeping it simple, she said, although the pattern emerging beneath her fine hands did not look simple to me. An A, a B, an alphabet, and all in the single color, milk. The letters distinguished by only the altered stitchwork so the nursery would be beautiful, Whichever of the children has a baby first, she said. She loved the future, no matter she wouldn't be there. Three. Second born. As fateful as the transit to light and air, or so you've often tried to teach me, I will never properly understand. But I know how the hair at your temples curls in summer when the air is moist as if she'd been returned to me. 
I must have had some under-the-radar notion even then when we were children how that little looseness threw my petty masteries in the shade. And so the joy of it was lost on me. Till you. I'm the only person living who remembers her childhood curls. <laughs>